Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 15 once again. We will have a, a short reading today. Verses 1 through 3. Here again, the reading of God's word. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Amen. Let's pray and once again ask the Lord to give his help. Lord, this time has already been offered up to you in prayer, and so we return and ask again that you would please help us to see the beautiful pictures of the Lord Jesus as you have laid them throughout all of history. We thank you for the fact that we can come and worship, that we serve a God who delights to have us come into his presence. We thank you that all this has been made possible through the glorious person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we ask now that he would be honored in this time in our hearing, our speaking, and our worship. Amen. Amen. We continue with our examination of 1 Samuel 15 today. Last time we looked at verses 1 through 9, and I want to recap that for you since we have guests and we have folks from our number who were sick or worshiping afar when we were last in this section. In this chapter, Samuel comes to Saul and he reminds him of what he is. He is the Lord's anointed. And we noted that the entirety of our chapter is actually framed by this reassertion because God had a task for Saul to carry out. And the meaning of the task could only be understood in the light of the nature of the one to whom it was given. It was a task reserved for the king of Israel. And what was the task? Well, quite simply, as we just read, it was to slaughter the people known as the Amalekites. God told Saul that every man and woman and child in the primary city of the Amalekites had to be destroyed. And so we actually spent the entirety of the last sermon probing the meaning and significance of this assignment. And here's what we discovered. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, Abraham's grandson. Esau was the older of the twins born to Isaac. And as the oldest, the birthright, the family birthright, belonged to Esau by nature. And what was that birthright? that Esau would inherit all the promises that God made to Abraham, his grandfather. Namely, that he would possess the land of Canaan, he and his offspring, and that he, Esau, would father the one who was to bless the nations and crush the head of the serpent. But Esau, who had no love for the Messiah and no sense of his own need for the work of that Messiah, despised his birthright and sold it to his younger twin Jacob when he was starving. And as a result of this, Esau and his family left Canaan and established the nation of Edom. Yet one of his offspring who dwelt in Edom broke off from the Edomites and founded his own nation. And that man's name was Amalek, 
And so naturally, the nation that he spawned was known as the Amalekites. And the Amalekites believed that as Esau's descendants, that they had actually been cheated out of the land of Canaan by the deceptive schemes of their great-uncle Jacob. And therefore, when the Amalekites heard that God was bringing Israel, Jacob's offspring, out of Egypt to go and possess the land that the Amalekites believed was rightfully theirs, then they went out into the wilderness and they attacked Israel at a place called Rephidim. Now, this attack came when Israel was hungry, weak, parched for thirst, and had just witnessed Moses strike the rock upon which the pre-incarnate Christ stood and from which he sent forth living waters to sustain them. Israel was traversing through the wilderness as pilgrims and sojourners on their way to God's Sabbath rest in the promised land. And therefore, Amalek's attack upon Israel was an open-handed rejection of God's granting the land to Israel, and it was an assault upon the redemptive work of God in setting up a kingdom in Canaan from which the Savior of the world would come. The Amalekites, as we said, were anti Christ and were used by Satan to the, oppose the accomplishment of our redemption. And so God defeated them in the wilderness, and he swore that he would utterly blot the Amalekites out, warring with them from generation to generation. Then 40 years later, as the people are finally about to enter into the land, Moses made sure to remind them that once they had obtained the rest in the land, that that rest had to be consummated or sealed by destroying the Amalekites. Moses said to them, quote, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. And therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. You shall not forget. Now, why would God command this? Because God wanted to illustrate that the kingdom would be sealed into its permanent state of Sabbath rest by striking a blow of judgment upon the enemies who had opposed the attainment of that rest. But of course, the reason why God did not have Moses or Joshua or the judges or even Samuel deliver this decisive blow to Amalek was because the task of establishing the kingdom and sealing it into its intended state of rest was a job reserved not for the judges, not for the prophets, but for the king. Kingdom work is king's work. And so the job of destroying Amalek was reserved for Israel's king. Saul was the first king. And so the Lord comes to him in our text and says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Now go and strike Amalek. That's what we learned about our text last time. And then, of course, we finished the sermon by tracing how this idea of, of God's holy king consummating the kingdom into a state of Sabbath rest through judgment is fulfilled when Christ, the great king, ushers in the eternal Sabbath of the true Canaan kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, by destroying those who persecuted and despised his people as they sojourned toward their rest in that eternal city. Now, with all of that brought freshly back to your minds, I want you to step back and realize that what we did in the last sermon was to develop the significance of the people that God commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites. But today we're going to walk ourselves back to the beginning of the text, and our goal will be to develop the significance of the other portion of God's command to Saul. Because God's command did not merely stipulate what Saul should do to the people, the Amalekite people, but he also gave orders concerning what he was to do with their property. 
So then if last time we considered the importance of the people, today we're going to look at the importance of the plunder. Now, in order to ease any worried minds here at the start, let me begin by saying that even though we are not going to spend a lot of time parsing through specific verses from 1 Samuel 15 today, that we are going to walk verse by verse to the end of the chapter next time. As has been the case throughout our time in this book, one of my goals here is, of course, to give you some of the big picture ideas that are helpful in making the specific parts of the text meaningful and illuminated. So then, let's begin by returning to verse 2 and hearing God's command to Saul once more. Verse 2 says, Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now that was God's command, and it was a command of destruction. And we saw that the reason for striking the Amalekites was that God will inaugurate the rest between he and his people by destroying the enemies who oppose them in their journey to it. So that explains the first half of the command. Go and strike this specific people, because this specific people persecuted you in your sojournings. But now we come to the second half of the command in which God instructs Saul also to destroy their possessions. And specifically, God mentions the Amalekite livestock. Quote, their oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, we've already noted in a previous sermon how the Bible will often uh, refer to a man's livestock as a shorthand way of speaking about the entirety of what he possesses, not just the animals themselves. And I would say that's very clearly what you have going on here. God is commanding Saul to destroy all of the Amalekite property. So then we ask this question, why would God command the Israelites to destroy the property as well? And I imagine that for most of you, an answer comes readily to mind. Well, as we saw in the last sermon, God wanted to paint a picture of the total destruction of his enemies. And so it makes sense that in order to fully paint that picture, that God would have Israel destroy not only the people, but also everything that they have. And I would say there is some validity to that. It is certainly true that destroying the people and their possessions does paint a more complete picture of judgment than just destroying the people, but leaving the cities, the homes, and the possessions intact. So there is an element of that going on here. But that's not the whole story. Because if we frame it that way, that the point of destroying the property was to communicate that the Amalekites were under judgment, then the meaning of the property destruction is found in what it tells us about Amalek. When you look at the destroyed property, what do you learn? The Amalekites were under judgment. And if that's the case, then the destruction of the plunder doesn't really teach us anything about Israel or its king that we did not already learn from the command to destroy the people. But I'm going to suggest that that's not the case. Rather, the reason that the Amalekite possessions are at the center of this text is because it contributes something unique to our understanding of Israel, its king, and their kingdom. So then what would lead us to believe that? Why would it even cross someone's mind that the command to destroy the property was God communicating more than just the Amalekites are worthy of judgment? Here's the reason why. This is not the first time that God has given Israel commands about what they are to do with the possessions of the peoples whom they destroy in judgment. And if the only purpose that God had for destroying the treasures of the conquered peoples was that the treasures be destroyed as a symbol of his judgment on the wicked, then God would have commanded that the Israelites destroy the treasures every time. But that's not what happens in much of the Old Testament. 
Now, we're going to look at a few more examples in a moment, but for now, just consider by way of contrast what God tells Joshua in Joshua chapter 11. Listen to this. Joshua captured Hazor and struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. Now, note that phrase again, devote to destruction. Again, that's literally put them under the ban. It's the same phrase that's used in our text in the command given to Saul. So we're clearly talking about parallel concepts here. Now back to Joshua. There was none left that breathed, and Joshua burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction. And all of the spoil of the cities, okay, here's our property, and the livestock, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. So here you have Joshua, during the conquest, placing the cities of southern Canaan under the ban, devoting them to destruction, just like in our text. And just like in our text, Joshua destroys every man, woman, and child in those cities. So at this point, we have consistency between this passage and our passage. Same command, devote to destruction. Same outcome, every man, woman, and child is killed. And just like in our text, Joshua 11 refers not only to the people of the conquered cities, but to their possessions as well. Yet unlike the command to Saul, Joshua does not destroy the Canaanites' possessions. The text says that Joshua and Israel took all of the spoil and the livestock for themselves, not devoting them to destruction. So we might expect that in order to paint a picture of complete judgment upon the Canaanites, that God would have communicated that they were to destroy the treasures as well. But instead, he commands Israel to have it. So we have a curious thing here. To Saul, God says, go put those people under the ban. Destroy everything they have. Don't touch any of it for yourselves. But to Joshua, he says, go put those people under the ban, but don't destroy what they have. Take it with you. So then what's going on here? Is God just randomly going back and forth between two opinions about the best way to carry out judgment, arbitrarily picking when Israel should have the spoils and when they shouldn't? Or is there a consistent theology of plunder and treasure in the Bible that would explain God's different commands in these situations? And the answer is, of course, there is a consistent theology behind God's actions. He's not a God of random impulses. As this chapter itself tells us, God is not a man that he should change his mind or have regret. So then how do we make sense of the biblical data concerning treasure and plunder? Well, let me give you the general axiom here at the start, and then we'll explore it a little more together. Here's the basic principle that we have stumbled upon in this text. God has a kingdom. And like any kingdom, God's kingdom includes treasures to be enjoyed. The one whom God appoints to rule the kingdom must steward the treasures to build the kingdom and to bless those who dwell in it. But in order to confirm his right to do so, the ruler must prove that he will not idolize and absolutize the treasure for himself. And this he will do as the Lord tests him by commanding him to devote a portion of it exclusively to his God. 
Now, I know that was a mouthful. If it's not clear, I think it will become so in a moment. So then let's, let's take a look at this principle in action so that we understand more of what's happening in our text. Consider, as we often do, the first kingdom that God established, Eden's land. God's word tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that the Lord established a special sphere where he would set his presence. Quote, the Lord God planted a garden in the east. And later it tells us that God walked in this garden. Now, God is the great king of all the universe. And yet the Bible mentions a specific domain where he sets his name and his glory in an special way. And what do we call a place where a king dwells and where his name and majesty hang over it as a banner, marking it out as his territory? We call it a kingdom. Now, how else do we see that this Edenic land is actually a kingdom in the scriptures? Well, kingdoms, and especially the kingdom's chief city, have walls and they have a gate of entry. And as Genesis 3 and the beginning of Genesis 4 very clearly show us, the Edenic kingdom had a gate marking out entrance to it and delineating that which was in it from that which was outside of it. This is how Adam and Eve could be barred from re-entry into the garden and how the cherub could be stationed in front of something to guard the way. Now, a gate is, of course, fully useless if all you have is a gate with nothing around it. A gate must have walls extending around in order to uh, make the gate useful for keeping people in and out. Kingdoms have temple palaces where the, the seat of kingdom authority is housed physically or symbolically. And as we've discussed, Eden is unquestionably cast in the latter scriptures as God's original temple palace on the earth. So then... We have the kingdom borders, the kingdom architecture, but what else do kingdoms need? They need a king, of course. And so Genesis 2.8 tells us that into the garden kingdom the Lord put the man whom he had formed. So God puts a man here. But are we really to understand him as a king of this realm? Well, the latter prophets describe Adam as being in the garden adorned with kingly regalia. But even here in Genesis 1, Adam is clearly given the charge of a king. God tells him that he is to exercise dominion of the kingdom realm. Dominion is kingdom language. Kings exercise dominion, and the sphere over which they exercise dominion is often referred to in noun form as their dominion or their kingdom. And we see Adam discharging this dominion right away as the animals come to him, and he names each of them as a parent exercises their authority in the naming of their children. So we have a kingdom realm. We have a king to rule over it. And through marriage, this king will populate the kingdom with subjects and citizens. But now more directly to the point of our sermon today. I want you to also consider that one of the things that God, the, the architect of this primal kingdom, did was to fill the kingdom with treasure. Now what do we mean by treasure? Usually when we use that term, we have in mind some kind of money. Right? The stereotypical picture is that of a large wooden chest that's sort of half open and overflowing with gold and silver coins. But when you think about it, what is the point of having gold and silver coins? It's what you can get with them. Because the real treasure behind the money is the resources of the earth that man can use for his enjoyment and his pleasure. So imagine for a moment... You're out on a journey in ancient times in a, in a very sparsely populated area, and all of a sudden, you stumble upon an unknown kingdom. And at the center of this kingdom is a large estate owned by the king. And as you walk up to the estate, you see a majestic house chiseled by artisans and craftsmen with high marble pillars and ivory towers. 
And as you go inside, you find that this palace is ornately decorated with beautiful draperies and carpets and wardrobes hewn of oak wood and filled with clothes of the finest silk. And as you pass through the palace into the grounds at the back, you, you see luscious orchards far as the eye can see, yielding ripe fruits that satisfy the tongue and the belly. And you discover rolling pasture lands filled with every kind of livestock to supply warm milk for the king's belly and the finest meats for his royal table which table you find housed under high vaunted ceilings and magnificent archways that form the great hall of his palace. And as you get to the end of it, you think back on all that you've seen and you say, my, the treasures of this kingdom are beyond words. Now in all of that, you might not have seen a single piece of what we typically call money. No currency of any kind, whether paper or metal. And yet you still would reflect back on what you saw and say that kingdom was filled with treasure. Why? Because treasure in its essence is that in the created world which brings joy and delight to men. The cattle, the silk, the orchards, the pillars, the perfumes, the fine clothes, the furniture. In all of those things, mankind took some of the basic raw matter that God put into the world and then he organized and fashioned it into something that would bring joy and delight and utility, usefulness to himself. That's treasure. And when God created the kingdom of Eden, wouldn't you know it, he fills it to the brim with treasures of great magnificence. Genesis 2, quote, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, treasure, Trees, plants, vines, bushes, crops, flowers, orchard, all of them designed to delight man's senses. The, the fruits were sweet to his tongue in all of their subtle varieties. The flowers and the trees burst forth with radiant colors to delight the eyes that God had made for seeing and apprehending beauty. A river flowed out of Eden, a river which in and of itself was beautiful and could be used by man to meet many of his needs and wants. God put it there. The text says it flowed around the land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold is in this kingdom. Now, there's some treasure for you. And the text even says that the gold of that land is good. It's good gold. It's not cheap gold. Hard, durable, tradable, and abundant, pleasant to the eye, able to be smelted and used to accentuate beautiful dwelling places and pots and vessels, works of art for the glory of God. Good gold, good treasures for man. Bedellium and onyx are there. Bedellium, there's a word you don't encounter very often. A resin produced by the trees and the plants of the kingdom with delicious smelling aromas that can be used to make fragrances like myrrh so that man's experience of the created world might be adorned with delight through his nose, that he might fill his heart and his home with precious odors and rejoice in the majesty of a God who creates such treasures and pleasures and wonders for man. Onyx stone is there. Rocks filled with mesmerizing mineral patterns that sort of carve and weave and twist their way beautifully throughout the stone. Fiery reds, deep purples, blues, as bright as the ocean and clear as the stars. Now, why am I going through all this? Because I want you to just think of the majesty of God. He sets up a kingdom, and everywhere man could turn, he has filled it to the brim with created wonders that scream of his glory, treasures that man can possess and use and enjoy and that are perfectly suited 
to delight all of the capacities with which God has made him for perceiving and understanding the world around him. Kingdom treasures abounding. And God takes the man and he puts him there. And he says, you may have all of it. All of it is yours to enjoy and possess. And not only may you enjoy the treasures, but you get to use them to help you take dominion of the entire earth, expanding the kingdom. The metals and the stone that I've buried in the ground, dig them, use them, fashion instruments of work and labor and transportation, design and build beautiful structures to live in and to grow the infrastructure of the ever-expanding kingdom realm of God on the earth. Cultivate vineyards and orchards and gardens. Raise animals. Discover and explore the vast wealth and untapped regions of the earth. You are the king of my kingdom. The treasure is yours. Use and enjoy it all. However, however, though I love you and I've made you and I've given you all these treasures to have and to hold, yet you must never forget that you are not God and I am. And the point of all that I have given you is that through these things you might know and enjoy me forever. You must use the riches for the purpose that I have created them. And at no point may you make the enjoyment of them an end in and of itself. Your enjoyment of them must not terminate on yourself as if your own experience of temporal delight were the ultimate purpose for which these things were made. No, the chief end of your existence chief end of man, the chief end of the kingdom and the chief end of all of the treasures with which I have filled it is that I might be glorified and may be the delight of your soul. And so Adam, in the words of Ezekiel 28, lest you, quote, in the abundance of your trade be filled with pride and sin and lest your heart be proud because of your beauty and you corrupt your wisdom for the sake of your splendor and you begin to worship the created treasures rather than the creator of the treasures, then, Adam, you must show me that you will not absolutize them and that you will view them as subservient to me, to be used within the bounds that I have assigned for them. And therefore, Adam, do you see that tree over there? Do you see that portion of the kingdom treasure there in the center of the garden? Adam, you must offer it wholly to me. You may not touch it. It is korban, devoted. You may not have it. Every tree of the kingdom and all of its treasures, they're yours, but I have a special purpose for that tree in the middle of the kingdom. And that purpose requires that you refrain from possessing it for yourself. So do you see right here at the beginning, we have a basic framework set up. God establishes a kingdom, fills it with treasure, creates a people to possess and enjoy that treasure and to use it to build the fullness of the kingdom. And yet in order to ensure that the treasure is not turned into an idol, and by extension, that man does not turn himself into an idol. The Lord marks out a portion of those riches, and he says, you will devote that to me as an offering of your will. Now, in the case of the first kingdom, the treasure to be reserved for God was the fruit of the tree of the discernment of good and evil. And the text tells us that it was a beautiful and attractive portion of the riches of Eden's kingdom. The woman saw that it was, quote, a delight to the eyes, and even desirable to advance man's will and wisdom. It really was treasure in that sense. But the Lord forbade the kingdom inhabitants from possessing it. It was to be set aside, devoted to the Lord for a purpose. Now, I don't have time to delve into the full, of theolo full theology of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what it was. That's a sermon I would love to preach at some point. 
But at the very least, I will say this for our purposes here today. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was set apart as the judicial seat from which Adam, the king, would cast God's judgment upon the serpent. The king of Eden, devoting the kingdom's enemy to destruction by crushing his head. The tree of the discernment of good and evil was to be used as a means of showcasing, magnifying, displaying, putting it out there for all to see the justice of God. It was therefore the perfect testing ground for Adam. Take it for himself or use it to manifest God's glory. Which one was more important to him? Do you see it? God shares the kingdom treasures with the citizens, but their share in that treasure must be continually won and maintained by restraining from idolatry and devoting any portion of it that the Lord demands for himself. How'd that first kingdom end? When the king who was to share in the treasures of the Lord looked upon the portion that God had reserved for himself and said, I will have it for myself. What the Lord has given me is not enough. I must have this as well. And then I'll be wise and happy, satisfied. So God casts him out. And using the imagery of Ezekiel, the kingdom of Eden represented as a, as a great tree is cut down, burned, and plunged into Sheol. And mankind found himself cast out into the world, obsessively searching for what were now the cursed treasures of the earth, not only needing them for survival, but now desiring to worship himself by accumulating and controlling them for his own desires, and yet never being able to be fully satisfied by them. And so much history goes by, and we come to the Tower of Babel, and once again, Mankind tries to rebuild the kingdom of Eden by taking the treasures of the earth, as the text says, the great stones and the bitumen that God had put there, and by constructing, constructing them for themselves a tower city with its top in the heavens. The ultimate example of the futility of trying to control the riches of the earth for the purpose of exalting man's will. And in the shadow of that crumbled and ruined tower, God calls Abraham and the patriarchs, out of Ur of the Chaldees, back to the west, the opposite direction that man had been cast from God. And God plants the patriarchs in a fertile land, and as we watch the lives of those men, what happens? God blesses and prospers them, and the riches of the earth begin to flow to them. They accumulate gold and silver, lands, herds, servants, and cisterns, a reminder of what had been, and a foreshadowing of what was to come. So that's the big picture context that we are entering into here. But as we start moving our way back to King Saul and the Amalekites, just consider how this trend continues on. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they give us, they give us a little taste of the, of the treasures. But by the time we come to the end of Genesis, their offspring are now enslaved down in Egypt, the symbol of Sheol and death. And if we pay attention to the book of Exodus, we notice that Egypt is described as being quite wealthy, particularly Pharaoh, the king, he has many treasures and, in fact, wealth so vast that he has to build entire cities that are devoted as storehouses for his goods. So the treasures of the earth are now in the hands of the wicked. But as God redeems his firstborn Israel from the watery depths of Sheol, you will notice that the text is very clear to tell us that they do not leave empty-handed. Exodus twelve thirty-five: the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for the silver and the gold and jewelry and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians 
so that they let them have what they asked for. Therefore, they plundered the Egyptians. So Israel emerges from Sheol, having despoiled it of its riches. And then they enter into the wilderness, and it's not long before they encounter the nation of Midian. And they fight Midian, and they defeat Midian. And God tells them that they may have the spoils of Midian as well, but not all of it. He says in Numbers 31, take account of the plunder that was taken and divide it into two parts between the warriors who went into the battle and all the congregation and levy for the Lord a tribute to be brought to the tent of meeting. So the Lord shares the treasures, but only insofar as Israel will devote to the Lord the portion that he reserves for himself. And what does the Lord do with the portion of the treasure that his son Israel gives him both from Midian and Egypt? He uses it to build the kingdom house in their midst. Where did all the stuff to build the tabernacle come from? From the kingdom inhabitants, devoting the treasures of the kingdom to the Lord. So the treasures are used both as enjoyment on the part of the kingdom inhabitants, and they are also offered up by the kingdom inhabitants to establish and expand the kingdom. Echoes of Eden. But it gets even better for Israel. Because they weren't brought out of Sheol and into the wilderness just to stay there. No, they are moving back to a land that God has marked off as his special dwelling. A land that we are told flows with vines and figs and pomegranates and honey and dates and milk and pastures and flocks and springs. A land that Isaiah describes as being, quote, like the garden of God. And Moses even tells them in Deuteronomy 6 what God is going to give them. He says to Israel, God will bring you into the land that he swore to your fathers with cities that you didn't build and vineyards that you didn't plant, houses full of good things that you didn't fill, olive trees that you did not establish, and cisterns that you didn't dig. In other words, the kingdom land, God says, is full of treasures, and I'm going to give it to you. As God planted his first son, Adam, as the holy ruler of a holy land in his kingdom and gave him all the treasures to use and enjoy, so now God calls out of Egypt, his new son, Israel. And he brings him back to a holy land and a holy mountain and constitutes him as a kingdom and promises him all of its treasures. Amen. And under Joshua, they arrive at the borders of the kingdom. And at last, the promised treasures are within their grasp. They come to Jericho, high-walled city, filled with spoils, just as Deuteronomy 6 predicted, so here we go. Here's the first opportunity for Israel to begin taking for themselves the promised riches of the kingdom. And it's very interesting to note what God does next. We might expect that he would turn to Israel and let them loose and say, here's the kingdom. I've led you to it. The spoils are right inside. You go through and you take them all for yourself. But that's not what happens. Instead, God marks out Jericho and he says to Israel, his son, Though the kingdom of Canaan is yours and its spoils, yet before you go through and possess it in its fullness, you are to devote to me this first city and all that is in it to destruction. Quote, Joshua said to the people, the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction, placed under the ban. Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of them and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron, they are holy to the Lord. They shall go in to the treasury of the Lord. 
Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, child and infant, ox and sheep, camels and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now, what does that last part sound like? That's our text. That's Saul. Men, women, oxen, sheep, camels, and donkeys. God brings Israel to the land of treasures, and right as he is about to give it to them, he says, it's all yours. However, do you see this portion of the land's treasures here? It's mine. Put it under the band, the people and the spoils. And if this son of God, Israel, was to enjoy the spoils of the kingdom, then he had to prove that he would not absolutize them, just as Moses had warned. And he would not think that the treasures were meant to be enjoyed independently of God or desired more than him. And so just as Adam had to devote a portion of the kingdom treasure to the Lord, that it might be used as a means of bringing judgment on the original kingdom enemy, the serpent, so to Israel must devote a portion of the treasure to the Lord, that it might also serve as a monument to the wrath of God on this kingdom's enemies, the seed of the serpent. And as a whole, Israel was faithful in devoting the things of Jericho to the Lord, except for one man, Achan who coveted the devoted things and stole them. So already we're, we're teetering once again on the brink of Adamic disaster, touching the forbidden and devoted treasures. But fortunately, faithful Joshua rises up, burns Achan and his family, cleanses the guilt and pollution from the kingdom, and then the conquest of the rest of the land proceeds. Now, as I referenced earlier in the sermon from Joshua 11, once Israel had devoted the treasures of Jericho to destruction, the first fruits, then thereafter, wherever they go into the land, the Lord allows them to have the spoil. They conquer city after city, king after king, and they take the sheep and the oxen and the cattle and the gold and the vineyards and the cities for themselves. And at the end of it all, when they're finished, guess what? They now possess the treasures of the land. So now, son of God, is back within a holy land, possessing its riches, just as Adam was. We have returned to Eden, as it were, right back to where we started. But what was next for Adam? He wasn't just going to stay in Eden and only enjoy the treasures he could find within those four walls. No, Adam's task, his kingdom, would be enriched as the treasures of the whole world were brought into him. That's the commission God gave him. You don't stay there. You go and get all the treasures. They flow into the Edenic kingdom. And the same was true for Israel. They were not just meant to conquer Canaan and only possess what they found there. Now, as the Pentateuch and the prophets declare, after they possessed the land, then the wealth of the nations would begin to flow into Zion, treasures beyond the border of Canaan. And do you know where that leads us? Finally, back to Saul. How so? Because Saul ascended to the throne in a context where Israel has the kingdom land, and possesses its treasures. They had the promised cities. They had the vineyards, the milk, the honey, the figs, the gold, the silver. They have the treasures of the land. But what they do not have in the early days of Saul is the treasures of the nations. The wealth of the kingdoms has not yet begun to flow into Zion. They are still waiting on that development in what we might call Old Testament eschatology. And what we saw last time was that the Lord has now come to Saul and he's given him the task of consummating the kingdom. But now we've added the second piece to the puzzle. The second thing that would happen if 
Saul obeyed the Lord's charge concerning Amalek. Not only would destroying the kingdom's enemies inaugurate Israel's Sabbath in the land, but it would also trigger the inflow of the wealth of the nations into the newly sabbatized kingdom. It was all supposed to happen at once. That's what we keep coming back to. The conquest of the mountain, the destruction of the enemies, the sealing of the Sabbath rest, the inpouring of the treasures of the world, which would be used to build the dwelling house of God in the midst of his people, to go, as it were, from tabernacle, the tent of wandering, to temple, the palace of rest. The time for Israel to inherit the wealth of the nations has come. Why? Because the king has come. But what have we seen so far? That the one who would possess, steward, and enjoy the treasures must do so by willingly devoting to the Lord the portion that he reserves for himself. And so Saul, Samuel tells Saul, go and strike one of the nations. Fulfill the kingdom mandate. The wealth of the nations will be yours, just as Moses said, but before that can happen, you must be tested. You want the treasures promised to Zion's king? Then show yourself worthy. Show that God's glory is more important to you than your own lusts. Devote the first fruits of the wealth, not of the land, but of the nations to God's justice. Destroy all the treasures that Amalek possesses. Do not reach out your hand and touch any of it. If the test of Jericho was to obtain the wealth of Canaan, then the test of the Amalekites was to obtain the wealth of the nations. But Saul can't do it. Like Adam, he cannot bring himself to put God's glory ahead of his covenant. He's going to fail. And as a result, he's going to lose many things. His personal status as God's king, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in the next chapter, his sanity, and ultimately his life. And it will be David, who at the end of this book, this is a passage that just kind of gets passed over a lot of times, but it's very interesting now in the light of all this, David, who at the end of this book, destroys the same Amalekites and devotes their plunder to the purpose of unifying Israel rather than to enriching himself. And as a result, what happens to David? He ascends the mountain of the Lord. He's established on Zion's throne. And then immediately in 2 Samuel chapter 5, what happens? The wealth of the nations begins to flow in to him. And it is his throne that then uses that treasure to build the house of the Lord. So you see, destroying the Amalekite plunder had far more meaning than simply telling us that Amalek was under judgment because their stuff got destroyed. It's not less than that, but it is much more because it informs our understanding in the big picture of the Lord's purposes for Zion's king, that the faithful king, the faithful son, will not love the plunder of the kingdom above the God of the kingdom that he will restrain his hand from taking it all for himself, and that he would rather see the treasure devoted to the Lord in order to serve as a testimony of God's righteous judgment than that he should have all the riches of the earth to terminate their enjoyment on his own heart for himself. That's what we need, a king like that. David was wonderful. David did a great job in God's providence of painting a picture that was needed to be painted. But by the end of the next generation, Solomon was already elevating the treasures of the kingdom above the God of the kingdom. So we begin to realize that none of these men were ever the end game and that they were pointing us to one greater. And of course, that one is Christ Jesus, the great king. Now, I want you to consider 
how Christ's life illustrates this pattern that we have seen today. Follow this. According to Psalm 2, the Father promised Christ a kingdom. I think we're all familiar with that. And that kingdom included the inhabitants of the nations and the earth itself. The physical earth and all of its treasures and the inhabitants thereof. Quote, ask of me, Father says to the Son, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the people, and the ends of the earth your possession, a people and the cosmos, a kingdom and its citizens. All the treasures of heaven and earth will be his. And yet, Isaiah reveals to us in chapter 34, and we read this passage last time, that in the interactions between the Father and the Son in eternity past, that even though God the Father had promised the Son the treasures of all creation, yet still God marked out a portion of it, a portion both from the sons of men and the physical cosmos. He marked it out and said, Son, you will devote it to me as a sacrifice of destruction. You are to place it under the ban. Listen to Isaiah 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against the nations and furious against their host. Those are the inhabitants of the earth. He has devoted them, set them apart, marked them out for destruction. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter. So I want you to note there, Isaiah says, God has devoted the wicked men of the nations to destruct them, marked them out for that purpose. They are the sacrifice of Bozrah. But Lord, did you not promise your son that he would possess the people of all the nations? Wasn't that what Psalm 2 said, that he, that he would have the people? But now you've revealed that you've marked out a portion of them that he must destroy? Certainly the son will not stand for this. Then Isaiah sees a vision of a man soaked in blood. And he asks, Who is this that comes in crimson garments from Bozrah? The response, It is I, speaking in righteousness. I have trodden the winepress alone. In other words, Isaiah sees the one who had just offered the sacrifice of Bozrah that the Lord had demanded be given. He has devoted to destruction the portion of the nations that the Father reserved for himself and set aside to be a monument to his justice and his righteous wrath. So do you see the Old Testament dynamic? God promises the Messiah a cosmic kingdom and all the treasures of heaven and earth, including the sons of men. But in order to inherit the nations, the Father also tells the Son, Son, I have promised you an eternal kingdom filled with the sons of men as the chief glory thereof. But do you see that portion of the kingdom treasure? Do you see those men whom I have marked out? You shall not possess and incorporate them into the kingdom of glory. You must reserve them for me as a sacrifice. They must be destroyed. And Christ comes into the world. And as the king under probation, having the promise of the eternal kingdom and all of its treasures set before him, but knowing that his father has commanded him to devote a portion of it to him via destruction, both the wicked sons of men and, as Peter says, the earth and all of the kingdoms of this age who must be burned up and cleansed with fire. Christ knows that is all set before him. And so what does the devil do? He comes to Christ in Luke chapter 4. He takes him on a high mountain 
And he sets before his eyes, before the eyes of our Lord, just like it was set before the eyes of Eve and the eyes of Saul and the eyes of Achan, sets before the eyes of our Lord the kingdoms of this age and all their inhabitants, the very portion of the cosmic treasure that God the Father had commanded to be placed under the ban in Isaiah, the restricted, the devoted portion of the kingdom treasure, Satan singles it out, puts it before Christ, and then he asks, Did the Father say that you must devote these to him, that you must not reach out your hand and claim them for yourself, independent of his purposes? How cruel, how restrictive. Why should you be deprived of any good thing? This will not do. Someone like you ought to possess all of the treasure for himself. To you I will give all of this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you will worship me, it will all be yours. So again, we have the same temptation. Love the treasures of the kingdom more than the God of the kingdom. Desire to have your will exalted above God's. And Christ, standing in the place formerly occupied by Adam and Israel and Saul, responds by saying this, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, he would not stretch out his hand and claim the portion of the kingdom treasure that God had reserved. Instead, as we saw last time, he devotes to the Lord, the reprobate men of the physical earth and all of its treasures and kingdoms, executing the Lord's ban upon them as they are cast into the lake of fire. And because he does so, Revelation 21 tells us that God gives him what? The wealth of the nations, the treasures of the cosmos. Listen to John describing Christ's kingdom inheritance in the language of treasure. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jocketh, and amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their treasures, their glories into it. Its gates will never be shut. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." Christ inherits the spoils. He inherits the plunder, the wealth of the nations, the glories of the universe. His kingdom is filled with them forever. He is our faithful king. Yeah. So then, as we wind to a close, what does this mean for us? Christ has won the spoils. And because of his work as Savior, we are brought into his kingdom and we are made co-heirs with him. The treasures are his 
And by treasures, I'm not just talking about spiritual things, like, a new, you know, that, that's all there, a new heart, a new spirit, and all those things. But I, I literally mean the physical, eternal cosmos. All the treasures are his, they are his inheritance, and we receive them as our inheritance through him. The treasures of the cosmos are your birthright, Christian. They have been won and purchased for you by Christ himself. So then am I saying that if you come to Christ, you'll get wealth and treasures and lands and prosperity? Yes. Yes. But here's where the application comes in. What have we seen from the Old Testament eschatology of Israel? that the possession of the promised inheritance by the kingdom citizens is coterminous with the final blow of judgment on the kingdom enemies. And that means that our royal ownership of the treasures of the earth awaits the consummation of all things. This age, the age that is often referred to as the age of common grace, is a time of common or mutual possession between the wicked and the righteous of the resources of the earth. In this age, many of the treasures of the cosmos are in the hands of the wicked. And we don't have a right to go and take our wicked neighbor's stuff under the presumption that, well, it's our inheritance in the end anyway, so why as well grab it right now while we're at it. But what does Proverbs 13 say? The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. Now in this age, we often find that the opposite is the case. A righteous man labors, and through the prosperity of his labor, accumulates for himself some manner of treasure and, and wealth. And then what happens? It falls into the hands of the second generation, and the third generation, and the fourth generation, who are not quite so righteous as their forebear. And what happens? The wealth of the righteous ends up being laid up for the wicked. That's what happens very often in this age. But the great day of the Lord is coming in which Sheol will be plundered. And all of the good things that the wicked now enjoy as mercies from God in this age will be ripped from their hands, cleansed of the curse of sin, glorified by God Almighty, and turned over to His saints. That day is coming. So then what do we do now? Number one, be good and patient stewards of the treasure. God has given you everything that you possess, and you are a steward of it. And though you will not possess your current chainsaw or automobile or microwave in its current form in the age to come, all will be purged with fire, a new heaven and new earth will be merged in the, in the cosmic temple that Christ has gone to prepare, such that your possessions in this age will not be your possessions in the age to come. Yet still, the principle is this, that the one who is faithful with a little here will be set over much in the age to come. The one who is faithful with the sin-cursed treasures of this age that bring us frustration with the fact that they are constantly crumbling and breaking down and perishing and always having to be maintained, those things will be cleansed and purified. The basic elements will be brought over and we shall inherit things that will never rot or ruin, or rust, or decay ever again. So how you treat your things now matters. Yes, they are under the curse. And yes, you are constantly having to maintain them, and there's always that tendency toward decay. 
and at times they have to be replaced. But the mindset of us as Christians is that we are stewards. And so parents, let your children see that mom and dad actually have the view that the things that they possess really are given to them from God's hand. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, my wicked neighbor over here has a fairly similar set of things that I do, and clearly God is displeased with them, so the fact that he's given me these possessions ought not to be interpreted as a sign that he loves me, though that's not how we think. The things that they possess heap up judgment for them. The things that we possess that God gives to us are things that we are to steward for his glory and are sort of the down payment, the promise of what is to be ours in the age to come. Fathers, do your sons ever see you going out of your way to perform preventative maintenance on something, sort of proactively desiring to extend its useful life? Or does everything get ignored until it breaks down and then it gets shoved into a corner to waste away until it's tossed into the dump a year later when it might have been salvaged and made to be useful for a long period of time if just a little care had been given to it? Now, I know it's hard. And I know it feels like there's a million things that have to be done in order to care for your possessions, but all that means is the Lord's given you more possessions and you know what to do with. Now, we're never going to be perfect in this area, but it's the mindset behind it. The Lord has given me these things, and if I am going to have much to be responsible for in the age to come, I must learn stewardship now. A home, our homes can be models of good stewardship and faithful attention to the things that we have without being turned into idols. There's nothing godly or pious about saying it's better to live, choose to live on a dirt floor with nothing than to have some things and to possess them and to steward them and to use them for God's glory. We don't believe in the poverty gospel any more than we believe in the prosperity gospel. So use your things, steward them, model it for your children, and enjoy them. Second, use your things for building the kingdom house of God. The people of God in the Adamic kingdom were supposed to, and in the Israelite kingdom sometimes did, devote the treasures of the kingdom to the Lord so that those treasures could be used to expand the kingdom itself. Don't hoard everything you have for yourself. Give freely. Yeah, I'm talking about tithes and offerings. Sure, that's an application. But it's much more than that. You have people in this room who can, you can bless by allowing them to use your things or by bringing your things and using them to help them. You can teach each other skills that will help you. Tracy has taught me more about auto mechanics in a year or two than I learned from my father growing up. And now I'm able to steward my things a little bit better because I have some knowledge that he's imparted to me. He's been a faithful steward of his things. I know he's embarrassed that I'm saying this in front of everybody. But you can steward things for the glory of God and for building the kingdom. Bringing your gifts and your possessions into the church to be used by the church. Use them for the church. Be willing to give of yourself. Let your family see that you don't covet the things that they may, you may terminate their enjoyment for your own selfish lusts. Enjoy your things, but also use them for building the kingdom of God. Adam could not say that the fruit of Eden, he could not say that the fruit of Eden was less desirable than God. Not in that moment. But you can show that the God whom you worship is the lens through which you view your things and through which you enjoy them. Now, fortunately, we don't have to be in the position of Adam where the entirety of our eternal state is contingent upon how well we steward the things. 
I think we know what would happen if that were the case. So we look unto Christ. He is the foundation upon which we have all of these things as our inheritance. He faithfully stewarded. And so we look to him as our model. Brethren, the Lord is good. He gives good gifts to his children. Let's enjoy the gifts insofar as we use them as a means to enjoy the giver. Let's pray. I mean, there was a lot that went into explaining and defending what we just heard. How can we be so sure? Somebody might say, well, that's just one interpretation. How can we be so sure? How can we be confident that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us? How can we be so sure? Well, I think the Apostle Paul would say, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if the question is, how can we be so sure? Paul would say, how can you not be sure? God's already given us the chiefest of all of the treasures in giving us His Son. You, you think He's going to give His Son incarnate to live in our place, to hang on the cross in our place, raise Him from the dead, seat Him in the heavens, and then expect us to just wander about aimlessly, hoping that maybe, perhaps, something else would come along? Of course not. He freely gives us all things, and He's already given us the chiefest of those treasures. The Scriptures refer to Christ as the desire of the nations. It's already been given. So then the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us that God has given His Son, that God's Son, our King, has prevailed, has conquered, has and is still plundering the house of the strong man. And we have been brought into that. And how did, how did that begin? Or how, what the, the centerpiece of that is the cross. It's Christ and His death on the cross. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of that. And I'll, I'll read to you what He said from Luke 22. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is for you, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we see the breaking of the bread, we look and we are reminded that Christ has said, this is my body. This is to represent my body. And as we come to the Lord's Supper and we partake and we think and we meditate upon what Christ has done, we get tangible evidence that the treasure is stored up. We're, we're tasting it. We're touching it. We're, we're, we're feeling it. We're eating upon it. This is Christ telling us, don't doubt. The inheritance is laid up. It's already been gotten. And it reminds us that there is still to come a consummation. So as the elements are passed, consider Christ. If you're here, especially you children and others, and maybe 
you're not coming to the Lord's table. Look at the others. God has given a testimony. You, you can also be reminded that there is an inheritance waiting up for those of you who belong to Christ. If I, if I say something to you, children, if I say Jesus Christ was punished on the cross by the Father and He poured out His blood to pay for your sins, can you respond in your heart by saying, He did do that for me? That's a part of the inheritance, a little, a little down payment. God is saying He's already put that inheritance a little in your heart. And He wants you to come back to this time and time again. Even if you're not a church member yet, you can still be reminded of what God has done in Christ. And so let's all think and meditate upon Christ and what He has accomplished for us and then we'll, we'll have communion together.